0: Thank you for downloading this sermon. We hope you've been blessed by this ministry. If you'd like to give back, please invest in the future of Clearnote Church through our capital campaign, Faithful Through All Generations. To make a donation, visit clearnotebloomington.com give. This morning we have a very serious subject. Um, every time, you know, I listen to Romans as I cut the grass. Everybody knows that by now, right? Every time I get to this section, I find it one of the most encouraging sections of Romans. And the reason is it diagnoses me properly. I don't like to be flattered. I mean, I'll argue with you if you say I'm a jerk. But really, I know I am. And so when the Bible speaks to me, directly about what I am. It is such an encouragement to me because truth is not valued today and specifically truth about our condition before God. So let's read our text this morning. We're in Romans. We're in the third chapter. We're starting with verse 9. This is the word of God and it is eternally true. You can, you know, he's Jewish, right? The Apostle Paul's Jewish. We all know this, right? You can see him using his hands like an Italian, right? What then, right? What then? Are we better than they? Not at all. For we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. As it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. They have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be closed and all the world may become accountable to God because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For through the law comes the knowledge of sin. This is the word of the Lord. Now the first question we have as we read this, since it says, what then are we better than they? The first question we have is, is who better than whom? Who's who's the they? You know, who is he referring to with the they? And we have to go back to the previous verse, verse 8, to see it. You remember the Apostle Paul has been being accused of uh, of encouraging uh, sort of a fatalistic life by talking about how God is glorified uh, in the judgment of sinners. And so what people are saying, he believes, is that that uh, since God is glorified by judgment, then let's sin that grace may abound because God's grace is shown in his judgment of sinners. In other words, if God is glorified both by the judgment of the wicked and by the mercy to those who look to Christ in faith, then... Let's just sin that grace may abound. And, and we think of this today in terms of uh, the end justifying the means. That's how we talk about it. You know, you don't do, you know, two, two wrongs don't make a right, right? That's, that's one of the things that we would say. But it's a common error to think that if good comes from something that's evil, it sort of ameliorates the evil, right? It's not quite as bad. And so that's what they're saying about the Apostle Paul. You know, you're encouraging evil by what you're teaching, You're encouraging evil. Now, how does he respond to that? Verse 8, he says, And why not say, as we are slanderously reported, and as some claim that we say, let us do evil that good may come. Their condemnation is just. Now, I want you to feel what's going on here. I hope all of you realize that the only narrative in America today is the narrative of the hatred of authority. That is the the overarching narrative of everything you read, everything you see. It's hatred for authority. Okay? If you don't realize that, I'm telling you, it's just hatred of authority. You know, even to the Supreme Court hating the Constitution. Okay? Now, I know you don't think that way because they make a big show out of submitting to the Constitution. They take vows that they're going to submit to the Constitution, right? But it's a living document. They don't submit to the Constitution. And from there down to the presidency, to the legislature, then to the local state level, everywhere, to the church, okay, to the elders board, everywhere is an orgy of hatred of authority. And so the Apostle Paul is demonstrating this very thing. He is trying to protect the sheep. That's why Paul lives, is to honor God and to take care of the sheep, to protect them, right? He's working hard to protect them. And what happens? Well, it's always what happens. The man who actually tries to be helpful is attacked. And so the Apostle Paul is being attacked here. The Apostle Paul is being slandered as we are slanderous, we reported as saying. So this is a really old game. The reason pastors normally aren't helpful is because if you try to be helpful, they'll slander you. And so the Apostle Paul's been slandered for trying to protect the sheep and defend the the glory of God. And so the Apostle Paul stops, and he says, why not say, as we are slanderously reported, and as some claim we say, let's do evil that good may come. And then he says this, he says, their condemnation is just. Now, that's not the magnanimity that you're supposed to demonstrate when somebody's slandering you. And was Paige Patterson this last week, you know, he says, oh, oh, I don't defend myself. You know? Well, the Apostle Paul's, the Apostle Paul's the inferior to the mighty Paige Patterson. Because he is defending himself here. Are, are you with me? I'm slanderously, their condemnation is just. What's wrong with the Apostle Paul? Why isn't he magnate? Why why is he defending? He doesn't need to defend himself. He's an apostle. Well, the apostle Paul loves the sheep, and he knows that he should not allow the shepherd to be attacked in a way that causes the sheep to jump off the bridge to get to the green grass. Because it's not good for sheep to jump off the bridge to get to green grass. Now, I'm using that as an illustration because I'm working hard to get done writing the sermon this morning, and I get a a call on FaceTime. Nobody ever calls me on FaceTime. And here's this call, and I'm like, (laughs) barely awake. I'm awake, but... And and so I push this button, it's coming on my computer and my phone, and it's like... And I miss it. And then I see it's from my brother. So I take time. It's 22 minutes until the the worship begins. so I, I, I push the button and then I go here and I do this and then it fails again and then it's rah, 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 rah. finally there's my brother David and his wife Cheryl and they're at a harbor site over in the country of Georgia and he's calling me on FaceTime and they say they prayed for me this morning. And that's encouraging to me. And then they proceed to describe being in the mountains in Georgia the previous day. And they described for me how they were way up in the mountains, and they saw what they said three or four times in a row, was a river of sheep. a river of sheep being brought up into the mountains for the summer. And they said that there were dogs and men on horses herding the sheep. And so I have this picture in my mind because I love reading books about sheepdogs and shepherds and sheep because it actually is a lot like being a pastor. And he said, it was so funny, he said these sheep were going across this bridge and some of the sheep saw green grass down below them and so they just jumped off the bridge, (laughs) you know? And it's a perfect description of you. And so a shepherd has to anticipate your stupidity. But when he anticipates your stupidity and tries to head you off at the pass, you will then headbutt him. Do you understand this? You are not easy to lead. And so what you'll do, your headbutts aren't headbutts. You know, I haven't yet had anybody in the door of the church lower himself and then headbutt me. You know, what you say is, well, you know, Apostle Paul, why are you so insecure as to defend yourself? You don't have to defend yourself. If you speak for God, let him vindicate you. And that's a headbutt to the Apostle Paul. You know, you accuse us of doing things because we're egotists. You know, you could put my name into the computer at home. Go ahead, try it. And then look for the word woman-hater. And, and there may be a thousand hits. You know, I despise women. I hate women. I'm, 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 I don't even know. The, the, uh, you'll, you'll find me threatened with death. You'll, you'll have people threatening, homosexuals saying that they want to rape me. Okay, this is all up on the internet. And the life of an authority caring for those under his authority is difficult. Are you with me? Okay? You're accused of everything you can possibly be accused of. And you're not thanked by those who are accusing you because if you defend yourself against one accusation, there are ten more where that one came from. And what comforts you is... I was talking to a guy this week, and this man has spent his life in the practice of law. He's a very good lawyer. In fact, he's so good, he spent a lot of his life defending pro-life demonstrators. That's not his day job, it's what he does pro bono and at risk, and he told me this, that this week, he just won a case where Planned Parenthood sued a pro-life protester, which, and he won, right? And we're all, all happy to hear that, right? But the great thing is that he got the judge to order that Planned Parenthood has to pay his legal fees. So this guy's good. And this man, in talking to him, had such perception of the attacks on pastors, but more than that, on The fact, he said to me, he said, there is no pastor left who will defend his sheep. There's no pastor left who will argue for God's doctrine. He said pastors are not willing to engage in conflict anymore. Why would you engage in conflict in America today as a male, as a white male, as a white male pastor? What's in it for you? I mean, you can build churches by not doing it, so why would you do it? Right Now, I'm telling you all this because I want you to understand that the Apostle Paul is always very, very personally engaged to the arguments he's making. He is not making dispassionate arguments. He is very aware of the press, of how it's going to play in Peoria. And so he says... Their condemnation is just, and make no mistake about it, he is saying that the condemnation of those who slander him is just. It's personal. Are you with me? And here's what's sweet. He then says, what then are we better than they? How could you not love the Apostle Paul? How could you not love the Apostle Paul? You know, he's just hit one out of the, their condemnation, I mean, if there was ever a moment for the Apostle Paul to be self-righteous, it's right now. And what does he do? He says, what then? Are we better than that? And you know that the answer is no. How could you not love the Apostle Paul? Come on. This man, it's not about him. To the degree that it is about him, it's only because it's about God and the sheep. Okay, He's willing to be bloody, he's willing to be personal, he's willing to defend himself, he's willing to condemn his enemies, even though it looks self-serving. And then he says, what then? Are we better than they? And he says, not at all. Not at all. Not at all. Then he goes cosmic, it's been very personal, but he goes cosmic here. He says, for we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. Not at all, all under sin. All inclusive. You know that the outline of Romans, in chapter one you're dealing with the sins of Gentiles, in chapter two and half of chapter three you're dealing with the sins of Jews. First you deal with the gauche, direct, dirty, filthy sins of the Gentiles who don't have the law of God. Then you move to the hypocritical sins, the secret sins, the, the, self, uh, the self-promotion, the, the pride of the covenant people who think the covenant gives them a leg up and they don't have to be righteous because after all they're in covenant with God and they're circumcised. He's dealt with the dirty going, and he's dealt with the righteous, clean Jews. And he says, not at all, for we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. And of course he includes himself here. The Apostle Paul has been slandered, and they are rightly condemned for their slandering. But big picture, none of us are better than any others, okay? So we've dealt with the attack upon the shepherd. They're not right in in condemning him, right? (laughs) Excuse me. But that doesn't mean the apostle Paul is better than they are. One of the things I hate about the attack on authority today is that it has a premise that's faulty. And the premise is that there are good leaders and bad leaders. There aren't. Donald Trump is a bad leader, and that's the norm. There are no good leaders. And the Apostle Paul includes himself in this. I mean, I'm not saying everything Donald Trump. I'm not saying everything Donald Trump. Okay. The Apostle Paul, you must understand, he both defends himself and then he puts himself under the judgment of God. Do you see this? And, and so big picture, none of us are better than any others. Now listen to me, okay? I'm going to go through a list, all right? Contrary to what they think, Blacks are not better than whites. Contrary to what they think, blacks are not better than whites. And they do think they're better than we are. Trust me. And contrary to what they think, whites aren't better than blacks. And they do think they're better than blacks. I know one of them. Men are not better than women. We think we are, but we're not. And women are not better than men. And every woman thinks she is. And she's actually not. Baptists are not better than Presbyterians. And Presbyterians aren't better than Roman Catholics. And Russians aren't better than Chinese. And Japanese aren't better than everyone. That's not what I actually have written down. I suppressed myself when I was writing this. I said, no, I better not say that. What I actually had written down is that Japanese aren't better than Koreans. And, and then I thought, okay, well, I'll say it about Germans. Germans aren't better than everyone. But I didn't even do that. I said, Germans aren't better than Poles. And Brits, now I was going to say Brits than everyone, but I said Brits aren't better than Aussies. Moderns aren't better than the ancient. And Portlandians, who don't allow grocers to use single-use plastic bags for their purchases. Are you with me? They're actually not better than east side of Bloomingtonians, retirees who drive a Prius and wear Burkeys and walk into Blooming Foods carrying their reusable cloth shopping bag large enough for the food they, their partner, and they're too catsy. Okay? What am I doing here? What I'm doing is showing you that none of us ever stop getting a leg up on every single other person. You no sooner get done taking your vows than you feel superior to your husband. Okay? If you think that you're not a moralist who goes through life showing how you're superior to everybody else, uh, dude, get integrated. Integrated. You know, sh- You know, come out of your persistent vegetative state because you never stop thinking about your superiority to everybody else. And if you want to know whether that's true, we'll get there. there we're coming to the place where you will see that it's true. Goodness and badness are not a function of birth into a nation or race or participation in this or that trendy virtue signaling of public moralists who are certain that they're superior to everyone else because they aren't a day behind in the times of their humble bragging. In other words, every single people group right down to the younger three or the older three or the middle four in a family of 10, think they have a leg up on others because they are better than them. Okay, Allie? <laughs> you know, Allie is Mary Lee's younger sister. And you should hear the older ones talk about the easier life. That the, the, what do they call you, the three bumps or the three? What do they call you guys? The three what? Bumps. You ever talk to the Crumbs about their family? You know, you can, you can, you can make jokes about which one is like which one and, and how they get along and, and who fights and who cries and all this stuff. Then try to walk into the Trump family and say anything critical about any of them. And they're all of a sudden united. What did I say? I said Trump. Yeah, Trump Crumb. Not same difference. (laughs) My wife told me last a couple weeks ago she was so was it last week she was so uptight that I was messing up Elisha and Elijah. Well, you know, I'm 64. Okay, there are certain perquisites of being 64, right? Goodness and badness are not a function of birth into a nation or race. They're not a function of which part of the family you are. They're not a function of what sex you are. They're not a function of northern or southern hemisphere. They're not a function of the trends in the social justice warrior world. They're not a function in sustainability every single people group right down to the smallest level is hard at work trying to establish their moral superiority to everybody else. If you were to take any group of people and let's say same race, same northern hemisphere, same country, you know, same color hair, all Aryans, right? You just take absolutely everything, maybe, maybe maybe, a set of quintuplets, and you take half of them and you give them an eyeball in the middle of their forehead. And the people with the eyeball in the middle of their forehead will, will argue that they're superior to those who don't have a third eye, even if that eye is blind and never stops having pink eye juiceless, and they're superior. This is who we are. This is who we are. So speaking and writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit... The Apostle Paul answers the question we better than they he says not at all for we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all and then notice the preposition we're all under sin you should always think how you would write the Bible if you were writing it and you know every one of us if we were writing this would not write under sin it wouldn't occur to any of us to write under what we would do is we'd say we're all sinners The Apostle Paul is not interested in establishing that we're simply sinners. What is the Apostle Paul doing with the word under? Why does he use the word under sin? Well, he spent two and a half chapters telling us and demonstrating the sinfulness of Jews and Gentiles. And now he is telling us that sin is not something we choose, but sin is something that chooses us. Neither Jews nor Gentiles are masters over their sin, but sin is master over Jews and Gentiles. Neither Jews nor Gentiles are over sin, but both Jews and Gentiles are under sin. A little later in Romans 6, Verse 17, he says, thanks be to God. And what is he thankful for? Well, he says, though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed. And having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. And what this teaches us is that there are only two categories of people. There are those who are slaves of sin and those who are slaves of righteousness. That's it. There are Those who are slaves of sin and those who are slaves of righteousness. Now you might want at this point to argue with the Apostle Paul claiming he has an overly negative view of man because he needed man to feel guilty in order to sell man religion. Very common thing. I noticed in conversations, this last week I don't remember who it was or where I was, but there was, well, now I do. But, you know, I was sitting there talking to a couple of guys and asked them what they did. Knowing full well, they'd say, what do you do? And so I, I brought up the fact that I'm a pastor. And then immediately I started talking about sin. Because what's the sense of them knowing you're a pastor unless you give them an opportunity to think about sin? you know, and immediately there was no interest in me, what I did for work, sin, God, anything. It was just very clear that and, you know, the conversation continued for another half hour but we didn't get back to that. I tried a couple times. I gave it the college effort. But who knows? Maybe they know where we are and maybe Actually, they know the burden they carry, like Christian. And maybe they'll come here to find out how to get released from their burden. Well, you know that when you say to somebody you're a Christian, it's the same thing, that that person thinks that, you know, you think you're better than they are because, you know, you're religious. And that's what religious people do is they trade on people's guilt, right? And so the Apostle Paul is saying that we're all under sin, and, well, that's what a man that sells religion would do. He'd convince you you're under guilt so that he can then provide the solution to your guilt. You know, he can solve your problem for you. He creates the problem, and then he solves the problem for you. The Apostle Paul knows you're thinking that as he talks, as he writes. He knows that when he says you're under sin, that your natural response is going to be, yeah, you're a preacher, that's what you're going to say. Because, you know, you want to get the honorarium for doing your funeral, my funeral. And so the Apostle Paul, being a very large man, secure in his calling, highly educated, the Apostle Paul does what? He knows what you're thinking. And so what does he do? Well... (laughs) You should know him well enough by now to know what he's going to do. What is he going to do? He's going to double down. He hears your objections. He doesn't. He knows you don't like saying all are under sin because that all is inclusive of you. And so he's going to double down. And man, does he double down. Listen to what he says. He says, as it is written. So the first thing he says is, Don't you accuse me of waking up on the wrong side of the bed. This has nothing to do with me. As it is written. Do you see that? His appeal is to the sacred text of Scripture. All right? It's not about him. As it is written, there is none righteous. Well, we're all under sin. There is none righteous. I can go under that we're all under sin. Before I can go under, there is none righteous. Because the none is more intense than all. You know, none righteous, none, none. Not even one. Oh, so we didn't know what none meant, and so we had to be told that none meant not even one. Listen, this man loves God, and he loves his sheep. And he loves you. And so he knows you squirrely mind. Are you with me? And he's going to go after you now. So let's watch him. Not even one. There is none, in case we hadn't gotten the first none, there is none who understands. Think of all the people here who think that they understand because they have a PhD or master's, bachelor's, GRE, gotten certified. And whatever their discipline is. And he says what? There's none who understands. And so you're going to say, well, they don't understand the intricacies of the doctrine of justification. No, actually, you don't understand anything until you understand God. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of a very specialized form of knowledge that religious people have. But that's not what Scripture says. Scripture says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. You know what book I gave to the vice president of IU about 22 years ago? He was a man that was in play spiritually. He was very confident of his own abilities because he brought all the money to IU that didn't come from the state coffers. Research. You know what book I gave him? I gave him a little book by Cardinal Newman called The Idea of a University. <laughs> Why? Well, because the entire premise of the book is that you you separate off the academy from the knowledge of God, and you have ignorance. There is no one who understands. No one. And then this one, there is no one who seeks for God. You hear everybody talking about how Uh, they have a a spiritual side. You hear people say this. Well, I have a spiritual side. I I have some spirituality. What do they mean by that? Well, what they mean by that is that they seek for God. And listen to the Apostle Paul saying, by the inspiration of Scripture, there's no one who seeks God. There's none. You know, you think about, you know, some of you, you think about how your parents are so, so intensely zealous for you to turn from God. And you say, What are you talking about? And I say, Well, <laughs> I can't tell you, but I can tell you immediately of two conversations I've had very recently. In both cases, the parents are trying to peel off their children from God. There is no one who seeks God. Oh, my Lord, I did not what? I did not choose you, but you have what? But you have chosen me. That's how the hymn goes. There's none who seeks for God. all have turned aside. Even the truth is, that is in front of us we're like those sheep diving off the bridge we turn aside together they have become useless that's a horrible thing to say about anybody that they're useless there is none who does good there is not even one once again we got the none, 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 not even one nobody does good So now we move from the general to the particular. And what better place to lodge it than in the mouth? And we move from different parts of the mouth. And so we start with what? We start with a horrible image, which is their throat is an open grave. And you've probably never thought about that. You know, open sepulcher, open grave, you just think, yeah, 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 well, the throat is an open grave, yeah, yeah, my throat. What Calvin does is Calvin says, well, this is worse than cannibalism. Because a cannibal chews up the body, whereas these throats are so awful that they can take the body whole and swallow it. Their throat is an open grave. With their tongues, so we move from the throat to the tongue. With the tongues, they keep deceiving. He doesn't just say they're liars. He says they keep lying. They keep deceiving. Then he says, the poison of asps is under their lips. So, you know, you think of a snake being sneaky. And so even, you know, tucked into the lip, it's not a chew. It's poison of asps. And then mouth, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. So this is the mouth. We move from the throat, to the tongue, to the lips, to the mouth. And the mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. And this is, this is what God says about us. He says, verse 15, their feet are swift to shed blood. None of us think that, we're blood, uh, that we shed blood. We don't think that way about ourselves. We think, well, even if my tongue is, is not good, and I, yeah, I do depart from the proper way, and yeah, I don't seek God. But man, he says that their feet are swift to shed blood. And we just all say, no, that's not me. He's got me wrong. Okay, fine. It's written. The Apostle Paul reaffirms it. But you're not swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their paths. And the path of peace they have not known. I remember listening to an interview with Bob Dylan from some British uh, uh, show on the radio. I was working out in the backyard of my parents' house. This was probably when I was 19 or 20. And I love listening to Dylan because he'd never pandered to the, to the people that were interviewing him. And this guy was part of, you know, the, hey, peace, brother, movement, you know. Peace, peace. And uh, he kept trying to get Dylan to admit that his, his uh, thing was peace, that Dylan was a great prophet of peace. And Dylan was having none of it. But the guy kept badgering him. You know, well, like, like, wow, man, peace, man, peace. And Dylan finally got sick of it, and Dylan said to him, Look, man, what do you think peace is? You think we have peace? Really? And then Dylan said, Look, he says, the moment you stop and reload your gun, that moment, that's the only peace you'll ever have. You're not actually peaceful, women. You're not actually peaceful in your marriages. (laughs) You think you are, but you're not actually. The path of peace, they have not known. And then, the final one. There is no fear of God before their eyes. There's no fear of God. Calvin says this, He says, since the fear of God is the bridle by which our wickedness is held in check, its removal frees us to indulge in every kind of licentious conduct. Of course, look at what they are above when you get to the end. There's no fear of God before their eyes. And so these statements you see are all in capital letters. That's because he's quoting scripture. He's quoting more than six different passages in the Old Testament. And a number of them are from Psalms and the others from Isaiah. And this is what the Apostle Paul says about us. And it all begins with, There's none righteous, not even one. And it ends with, There is no fear of God before their eyes. And, and brothers and sisters, this is the truth that's missing from the church today. This is the truth that's missing from the church today. What people come to church thinking they need is to be uplifted. But what they need is to be downlifted. Because all of us are proud and vain. And all of us have too high an opinion of ourselves. And all of us spend our lives justifying ourselves. We are masters at self justification. And instead of our pastors warning us that this is a highway to hell, they pander to us. And they help us make excuses. In fact, they perfect our excuses. I've been trying to speak up in defense of a national leader. And I said to somebody earlier this morning, I said, you know, I know all the charges against the man. And I know him personally and his wife. And I guarantee you, that all of, the, all of the people participating in the witch hunt against this man, I guarantee you I can improve their criticisms of this man. I can improve them. We hate God. We have no fear of God. And so we go through our lives escaping every authority that God has put over us for our good. We escape our husband's authority. We escape our parents' authority. We judge our wives and our husbands. We judge our pastors. We judge our elders. We judge our presidents. And when we stand before God at the judgment seat, we think we're going to be able to blame it on somebody else we we really do believe this we believe i never forget this this new this cartoon i saw about 30 years ago It's the little man standing under a high and lifted up judge at the bar and the little man's looking up at the judge and he says guilty with an explanation your honor And that's how we think we will stand before God. And the whole world kowtows to us. The whole world tells us that we can't be expected to obey our sex because our mama put us in dresses when we were a little boy. And then we got raped when we were eight. And our father wasn't at home when we were growing up. And when our excuses? is going, you know, I'm colorblind. I, I can't. And it goes on and on. Well, I can't discipline my child because my child's sick. You know, he has a food allergy. Oh. She really does have a food allergy. But she's my granddaughter. She was arguing with me just then. And so we come to church and we expect that church will flatter us the way Facebook does, the way our parents do, the way our teachers flatter us. And the country is filled with churches whose pastors have been hired to scratch the people's itching ears. And those people come into this church. And I mean, literally, it's like being on one of those Magne- magnetron uh, roller coaster things, you know, where. They tell you to put your head back against the headrest when it starts. Because with electrical magnetic power, it's instantaneous 60 miles an hour, right? And if you don't have your head back against that, you'll wish you had. And that's what I see constantly with people coming into this church. Their heads get whiplash. Because why? Well, because they have never heard that they're supposed to fear God. No one's ever told them to fear God. No one has ever told them that God wants them to what? Are you ready? Are you ready? Fasten your safety belts, put your heads back against the headrest. God says, shut your mouth. Did you see that here? Did you actually see it? Now we know, verse 19, that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law... What? So that every mouth may be closed. (laughs) Oh my. No one is going to give an explanation to God because his judgments are true. He judges with perfect justice and we will not be able to blame it on our mother. We will not be able to blame it on the older neighbor boy or uncle who raped us. No, 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 no. Nope. Nope. We are all guilty under the law and God has done it so that we will shut our mouths. You don't need to think about the person sitting next to you. What you need to think about is yourself. Remember that old song? Not my brother, nor my sister, but it's you, O oh Lord. No, it's me. It's me, O oh Lord, standing in the need of prayer. It's me, it's me, it's me, O oh Lord, standing in the need of prayer. So that every mouth may be closed and all the world may become accountable to God. Hindus, Muslims, sophisticated Brits, pugnacious Aussies, proud Japanese, greedy Chinese, scared Koreans, Arrogant Americans The entire world will become accountable before God because verse twenty, by the works of the law no flesh will be justified in his sight. None. You have stage four cancer of the soul. It's inoperable. There's no radiation treatment. There's no chemotherapy. You are a dead man before God. You. This is the true diagnosis of the human condition. And this is why every man is afraid of death. Because every man knows it's appointed unto man once to die and after that the judgment. That's why Woody Allen says, I'm not afraid of dying, but I don't want to be there when it happens. And so what is your hope? And immediately you're going to try to get a leg up on other people. Immediately you're going to say, well, I'm better than he is. That's... that's That is the perpetual answer of religious people. I'm better than he is. That's what the Jews were doing. Covenant nomism. You know, we're better than they are. God chose to have a covenant with us. We're circumcised. We're baptized. You know, we have weekly communion. We have covenant renewal worship. We sing psalms. We don't sing psalms. And those are all works of the law. And by the works of the law, no man will be justified. So what is, your, what is your hope? What is your hope? What is it? And you don't want to say it. Because honestly, it does sound utterly pathetic. You're strong. You're rich. You're educated. No man ever wants to say what his hope is. And that his hope is Jesus let alone to be washed in his blood. Blood is gross. And there is no hope for any of us unless we're washed in the blood of Jesus Christ. And that's the entire book of Romans. Romans is an absolutely screaming, loud, hard, heavy, blunderbuss, nuclear warhead against every single self-justification, every moralism, every superiority, every excuse, every victim. It just obliterates them until we shut our mouths. Shut our mouths. And we stand before God and we say, all we like sheep have gone astray and we have turned everyone to his own way and the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all and it looks pathetic I mean honestly it sounds stupid yeah yeah laid on whom And the world cackles and laughs. He's on a cross. He's like, God, God doesn't get killed. Are you kidding me? No, no, actually, I'm not. (laughs) Him. Oh, you're pathetic, dude. You're so pathetic. You're so pathetic. His blood, huh? Who told you that? (laughs) And we're like, <laughs> he did. And you can't do that. If you do that, you will die. Your soul is damned. Christian had everybody screaming at him as he left his home his wife, his children, the entire village. He had such an awareness of his sin. That he had to run to Jesus. And as he's leaving, they're screaming at him to come home. And his back is turned to them and he's running full tilt. And what does he do? You remember? He covers his ears and runs. And to drown out what he can hear through his hands, you remember what he yells? He yells, Life! Life! Eternal life! He's not going, <laughs> Him! He is fully resolved that he will have God, that he will have the the pathetic blood of Jesus Christ. And that's your only hope. It is your only hope. You have not been a good father. You have not been a good son. You have not been a good daughter or a good mother. I have not been a good pastor. And only the blood of Jesus can save anybody. And it's not until we shut our mouths and plead with God to wash us in the blood of Jesus if there's any hope for us. Okay? Okay? By the works of the law, no man will be justified. No man. But I'm telling you something. The minute you stop trying to look at the world while you say him, the minute you just look at him, then you start singing, beneath the cross of Jesus, I fain would take my stand. The shadow in a weary land. And you all of a sudden start singing all these songs about the most pathetically weak things that there are in this world, a cross. You know, I remember reading, for a short time, I subscribed to Free Thought Today, the magazine of, you know, the atheists. And I remember reading Madeline Murray O'Hare writing this this piece, just mocking the Christian cross in Jesus you know, likening it to a, to a scaffold, likening it to an electric chair, to a gurney, you know, just mocking it. And then you look at the cross and you think the cross is foolishness. Unless you have no hope in your own righteousness and you realize your throat, your lips, your mouth, your feet are swift to shed blood. You realize that when you drive around town, you slow down because that guy's speeding or you speed up and bumper tag the person ahead of you because they're not going the speed limit. You get to the roundabout and you want to kill the woman in front of you because it's a yield sign, not a stop sign. And this is who you are. This is who you are. And all of a sudden you look at yourself and you shut your mouth and you say, beneath the cross of Jesus, I fain would take my stand. There's no hope for me except the blood of Jesus Christ. He bore our sins on the cross. And I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I'm not. (laughs) So how about if we have uh, the meal that proclaims his death until he comes again?